Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a sunny day in a rather deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the microscope. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on the air today by Simon Buchanan. Simon is a director at Waterperry Gardens located in the village of Waterperry near Oxford, Oxfordshire. Simon, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure having you with us. Now, um, the purpose of this podcast is to gather together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. So what I'd like to understand firstly, Simon, is what that word leader actually means to you. Um, I suppose it means uh, someone who's able to give direction to um, his staff. Hopefully, I believe strongly in leading by example and uh, not asking people to do anything that you wouldn't do personally yourself. I think that comes down to a very key word, that, doesn't it? Humility as a leader. That's a very important quality to have. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, And I think all of us know that often we end up in a position of leadership, quite frankly, by strange twists of circumstance that happen in life. And uh, so it's worth really acknowledging the fact that anyone could be in that position uh, and any one of your staff, you could be in the same position as any one of your staff just by a twist of life circumstances. So uh, I don't think there should be any sense of specialness in being a leader. And so humility, I do think, is a good characteristic. Um, You say there as well that people can become leaders just by essentially fatum in a certain way. Um, Would you say that that was the case for yourself in your career, Simon? Definitely. I spent all, most of my life as a self-employed stone carver. And it was only by a strange twist of fate that I ended up ending up being the, in effect, the managing director of Waterbury Gardens. Um, I just happened to know the old steward of the estate. And uh, he thought sculptors were practical people that could turn their hands to anything. And before I knew it, he'd asked me to do the job. <laughs> so it was a complete clear career change for me. Certainly seems One to of the first things I found out, I suppose, was that um, people are um, a lot more challenging than lumps of stone. Mm. <laughs> uh, uh, there's really good sides and bad sides to that, of course, as I'm sure we all know. Absolutely right. it's all about people. Mm. Because I think, as you were saying there, um, an important aspect of being a leader is being able to understand people and manage people and that can sometimes be a little bit difficult especially when one's going into a leadership role and they may not necessarily be an expert in the human psyche yeah i think what i found is communication is really the key to almost all of all of good management and that's something i've really had a steep steep learning curve to try and try and deal with but uh yeah letting people know uh, what's going to happen before it happens seems to be really important for staff confidence. And, uh, of course, doing what you're saying you're going to do is, is even more important. So there's truthfulness, I think, is probably one of the key attributes as well. 
I think you're absolutely right um, in saying that. And that links back to transparency as well, doesn't it? I think um, honesty, as you say, is um, so, so, so important. So when you're managing a, a particular group of people. And it's interesting how you talk about um, how you've learned to sort of take on board those uh, leadership qualities as you've gone through um, you, that change in your career. Um, there are some people out there who may think that certain people are born with certain um, innate qualities that make them good leaders. But would you say it's more something that you can actually learn and develop as you go through your career? I think that most people can learn to be a leader of a type and, and everyone will have their own style of leadership. Um, I've, I've only known one style myself, which is the style I've developed, but I, I often look across at other people and who are leaders in various, various parts of industry and stuff and I'm very impressed by the way they lead. So I tend to find the best way forward is to... Um, is to lead by example, to lead from the front, um, and to make people aware that you you wouldn't ask them to do anything that you wouldn't personally do yourself. So that's my particular style. Um, but I, I've seen other people use other approaches which seem to be just as effective. Exactly. Um, leadership does come in many different uh, faces. And um, if we think about your style of leadership for a moment, Simon, what would you say have been some of the influences behind that? Um, I think, uh, probably the way I was educated, uh, both at school, but also I did a very old fashioned apprenticeship uh, as a sculptor. So I trained for seven years and you go through a very sort of staged approach of starting very traditionally sort of sweeping the studio floor to ending up managing the, the, uh, the workshop. Um, so you sort of go through a very sort of stage level and, and so that you are never asking people that, that are working for you to do something that you haven't personally done yourself. So I think that's why my particular style has evolved the way it has done. I do agree that there's a great deal of merit in showing that humility as a leader in getting stuck in with those that you're working with to lead by example and really show that you're willing to get onto their level because as a leader, especially if you're aspiring to take people with you, showing that sort of humility is one surefire way of doing that, isn't it? Yeah, it does seem to be. <laughs> and uh, in, in the small business, I mean, we've only got 70 people here, really, as employees, and many of them are part-time. Um, you are seen all the time. Um, so it's not it's not the kind of role where it's useful to just be sat in an office. Although um, often I feel that it would be more useful for me to be taking a bit more of a a back seat and sort of steering occasionally but uh it does seem to have a, a, a good effect to be seen to be physically getting your hands dirty and and to be leading from the front um a bit more of an abstract question this one simon but if you could actually go back in time to yourself maybe 15 20 years ago um is there anything that you would tell the younger you to do differently consider um, considering the experience that you're now armed with yeah i would say to really be confident in yourself and trust yourself and really develop public speaking. I think public speaking and not to have a fear of putting your, uh, a fear of any kind of communication would have been the strongest virtue that I would have liked to develop earlier in my life. And if you were to give some advice to sort of the younger generations of aspiring leaders out there, would maintaining effective communication be one of the biggest pieces of advice that you could give them? Yeah, I think it would be right up there. Absolutely. Um, 
being able to communicate, to have have what would in old fashioned parlance be called the common touch, um, and at the same time to not lose a sense of authority. It's a fine balance, isn't it? Uh, maintaining that sense of authority with also that human side. And um, as leaders, sometimes it can be quite difficult striking that balance, can't it, between maintaining authority but also showing that sort of softer side to your personality, I suppose. Yeah, I think it is a very difficult balance. And uh, I've often found myself uh, wishing I hadn't made a particular joke at a particular time, which has sort of lost that authority in various situations. <laughs> but we all live and learn. And... Uh, uh, I think I think people like to know that their, their leaders are human beings, um, and not some kind of faceless autocrat or whatever the word would be. Mm. I think that phrase "live and learn" is, is so important because I don't think it's really possible to become a good employee or even a good leader without having the experience of trying things, maybe making one or two mistakes and then learning from them to improve. I think that's integral in one's development as a whole, isn't it really? Yeah, I think that is. And if sorry, we certainly... I've become a... Sorry, can I go? No, no, do go on, Simon. No, no, I just got a bit distracted because my phone made a slight noise, like it might be running out of charge, which made me nervous, that's all. Oh, no, it's um, absolutely fine. Um, we are um, close to um, running out of time on today's programme anyway, uh, Simon. But before I do uh, let you go, um, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself and for Waterbury Gardens and also what you hope to achieve in that time, not just in navigating the current COVID situation, of course, but also in emerging from the other side of the pandemic as well. Um, it's going to be hugely challenging for us because we've, uh, we're, we're principally a tourist gardens and um, we're also, the other major part of our gardens is as a garden centre. So we've lost uh, the key months where we would be as busy as we would ever be. Obviously, it's the, it's the time for growing, and it's the time when people spend the most in garden centres. So it's going to have a massive effect on us. And things like coach parties and all that sort of stuff going on into the future will obviously reduce massively. And as a garden centre, tourist garden offer things like the tea shop, which is a major income generator for us, will, won't be obviously functioning as fully as it would have normally be. Um, so it's going to be very, very challenging. Um, we're definitely going to be in a, in a hugely challenging financial position at the end of the year. So what I'm hoping for is to be able to bring everyone together, working as hard as they can to see us in the best possible situation we can be in so that our owners feel like it's worth continuing to invest in us and hopefully be back on an even keel next year so we can continue the upward the upward sort of uh, development that we had been happening until this year came along. Mm, let's so, see that, um, yeah, uh, but I know, I mean, um, the only sort of light is that uh, everyone else in our industry is in exactly the same boat. Mm. Um, so I just hope that the banks are kind to us going on into the future and that things return back to normal as soon as they can and that I can continue to employ my lovely staff 
as many of them as I possibly can going on into the future. Because in the end, it's all about people and people's happiness. In fact, that's really our strap line here. It's uh, may all be happy. It's even written on a big obelisk in our garden. Mm. And I think that all includes, obviously, my staff, the customers here, the visitors here, and all of us in the whole country. So that's the goal. <laughs> I don't think it's an unreasonable goal either, Simon. And um, let's certainly hope that it's we are going to see that upward trajectory sooner rather than later. And I think it would actually be really good for the listeners um, who are tuning into this to perhaps even have you back on the programme in a few uh, months' time, just to see how the other uh, business is getting on as we move through this pandemic. Um, but for mm. now, I have to say, it's been an absolute pleasure and also really insightful experience having you on uh, today's uh, programme with me. And thanks ever so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me today for the listeners' benefit, no less. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful, Simon. Thank you once again. That was Simon Buchanan of Water Perry Gardens. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, Sir Andrew Strauss is currently the director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. And as a player, he is one of only three England captains to have won the Ashes, both at home and away in Australia. He's also the England captain with the second highest amount of test victories in history. Um, I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew. And that's coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year, so congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname, ah. it was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. 
and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So, it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and o- obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any, uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and and, and you've got (laughs) other places to be, so (laughs) we can't do that. But if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that. But perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the ashes was mm. back then you know we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible australian teams year after year so you know the, the closer we got to it the harder it became um i remember ashley giles walking into the dressing room for the f- i think it was in the final day of the series and i looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years i went god charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising i haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and i went well join the club you Quite. know and i think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that, that G4 
just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, you know, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for Absolutely. Everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become focal point of criticism uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong especially when the going gets tough you become a leader in many senses of the word uh, during your time as captain what qualities does one require to fulfill that role ha. um well a fair amount of resilience for starters mm. you know you're absolutely right you, you know I, I remember when I, I got the role it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and 
mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was... We had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so, I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But 
actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves, mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of, uh, especially school kids, who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of, Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in, your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well you never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die... Um, we learned a lot in that process and, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of, you know, this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December, uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two f focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other. Because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards, if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively 
how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what, what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So it w w what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but 
in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and we'll be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.